Church family, what a joy it is for us to gather together and worship. I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 this morning as we continue in our series entitled Cultivated in His Character. We're walking through this summer the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. We come now to the sixth characteristic, which is the characteristic of goodness as we abide deeply with God through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We reflect the character of God. Imperfectly, yes, but we reflect the the character of God in His goodness. It really is a joy to be back with you. Last Sunday, if you're here, and my family, we were out. I was at Mont Eagle Assembly. I was the visiting pastor for that week, so Sunday through Thursday. I led the services there at a very unique a sort of interdenominational assembly that was founded about 130 years ago there right outside of Suwannee, Tennessee, uh, if you know where the University of the South is. And so for about eight, nine years, we've gone in the summer, and I, uh, they have a, a different minister from different denominational tradition that leads those services each week. And so we have some wonderful memories as a family. Uh, it's always stretching for me to be in that environment and to be able to preach You heard last Sunday, if you were here, a fantastic, compelling message from our college minister on Cain and Abel, and many of you heard Blake's message, and if you haven't, I would really encourage you to listen to that message, such a powerful message. So you are in good hands uh, uh, through the Word of God being shared with you. I'm always so appreciative of John Woods and his uh, wonderful leadership. I'm specifically encouraged by it when I have to go and be in that setting because I not only preach, but I lead the music for all the services. Why are you laughing? Why is that so collectively funny for everyone? It is. It is an absolute train wreck. Every year, it is. Okay, so this year, every year I have a story about, uh, I'm more uncomfortable in that setting than in any setting, and for some reason, they continue to ask me back. So I picked a Fanny Crosby song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Everybody would know that. No one knew that song. There's a repeat. I don't know what a repeat is. I don't read music. They're supposed to repeat it. Well, the problem is we get to the end, about a fourth repeated. The rest of the congregation goes to the second stanza, so you got half of the congregation that's going into the second. You got another, and I'm sitting over here off to the side, and I'm just like sweating profusely. I am so nervous in this setting. How am I going to redeem it? I can't. I find my beautiful wife. She's in the service. If I can just find Danielle, she will tell me through her kindness, her smile, all is going to be well, David. I find her. Our eyes meet, and she is laughing profusely. (laughs) She thinks the whole thing is hilarious. So all the way our Savior leads me, but uh, I, I, nonetheless, am not able to lead that song. And so, uh, so I'm really glad to be back with you and do what I really enjoy doing, which is preaching to people that I love and that I know and I care so deeply for. And so, John, thanks for keeping us uh, so well together. And you do such a wonderful job. So it's not enough just to stand and say, here's the song, go edit. Uh, so Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, in this fruit of the Spirit sermon series that we're in. Be reminded of just the central passage that has grounded us in the previous weeks and continues to speak to us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things 
There is no law. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The sixth characteristic of a life cultivated in the character of God is this characteristic of goodness. And I just want you to leave this morning grateful for the goodness of our God. I want you to leave this morning relishing the fact that is, is unchanging, that our God is good all the time. It's, it's a refrain, uh, refrain throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament there's no place that you're going to see this more prevalent than when you open up the Psalter and you go through the 150 Psalms. You, you hear this refrain again and again. Something like Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You turn from Psalm 34 and you go to Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Lowell Walker is a pastor at Mount Sinai Baptist Church in Tupelo, Mississippi, and for eight years I got to know uh, Lowell, and uh, just a wonderful, faithful pastor, and uh, I just love him today. And our congregations would worship together, and when Calvary and Mount Sinai would join together, Lowell would lead the call to worship there, and he, he would say it. I could just still hear him. It was a call to worship for their church. Uh, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And he, and he would just say it, and the congregation, no, let's, let's say that together. Uh, God is good, and all the time, God is good, and all the time, and it just centered this church. First thing that was said, it, it brought them together. It was just this collective, unifying thought that no matter what a person had experienced before they walked into that sanctuary, no matter how difficult that last week has been, no matter how trying that last week has been, no matter how uncertain the future is, the Lord God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. You might not feel that all the time. The psalmist doesn't tell us that life is good all the time. We need not have sort of this kind of Pollyannish view of life where, where we, we see evil and call it good. It's not. There's real sin in this world. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. You can sin against others, and people can sin against you. There's disaster. There's disease. All you got to do is turn on the television, open up the newspaper. It's, it's, it's front-page news. We know this. We live in a world where evil is real, and it's not helpful. It's not accurate. It's not biblical for us to, to look at evil and call it good. What we're saying is, is when evil prevails, God is still good. When the question marks are all around you, God is still good. When you don't know if you're, you're right from your left and you're, you have the consequences of, of sin or someone else's sin, God is good. Joseph knew this. Uh, there's no greater illustration in all of the Bible than when you open up the first book of the Bible, you go to Genesis, they're right there in Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, the end of the book of Genesis has this story of God's goodness all the time. But life wasn't good all the time for Joseph. Joseph's father has his favoritism toward him. Sibyl and rivalry takes this sort of homicidal plans by the brothers. 
They throw him into a pit. They leave him for dead there as they're eating their lunch off to the side, indifferent to his screams and to him being left for dead. They say, you know something? We can make some money off of him. They drag him out of this pit that they've thrown him into, sell him into slavery. God is with him, though. It's the refrain of the story. Promotes him to the right hand of a Potiphar, an Egyptian official. People take notice of him. Potiphar's wife does. Falsely accuses him of harassment. He's thrown, not in a pit this time, but in a prison. But again, God is with him in prison. It wasn't good for him in prison. He's left for dead. He's forgotten in prison. But you know who didn't forget him? God didn't forget him. Everybody else did, but God didn't. God brings him out of prison because he has this unique, uncanny ability to interpret dreams. Pharaoh has a dream. He begins to realize, Pharaoh does, that the very answer to his dream is this man that has been pulled out of prison, and Pharaoh would exalt him to sort of the secretary of agriculture there for all the Egyptian empire. And then when, when everything comes full circle, and his brothers that have thrown him into a pit, sold him into slavery, are now coming because he has the, the access, the, the storehouse to food in the midst of this famine. It's in this moment that you have this capstone verse in Genesis chapter 50, as he looks at his brothers in verse 20, and says, as for you, like all of you, my brothers, you meant this for evil. It was an evil act to throw me into prison, but I want you to know your evil doesn't discount the goodness of God. You read it here, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It is just a wonderful truth to relish in that all the circumstances that come your way, that God ordains and God allows, God can redeem for your good. Now, all that he ordains isn't, isn't good in the moment. There's real evil. There's real sin. There's real death. There's real disease. There's real sickness. There's real betrayal. There's real depression. There's real hurt. There's real anguish. There's real tears. So as you come here this morning, you need to relish the truth that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. George Mueller knew this. It's a name that maybe you're not familiar with. He was a 19th century British preacher, founder of a very famous orphanage. His wife's name is Mary. They're married, he and Mary, for 39 years. Rheumatic fever brings her to her deathbed. She passes away. The next Sunday, he stands before a congregation that he knows and he loves and he cares so deeply for that have been praying with him for the healing of his wife. And he stands before this congregation out of all the passages that he could choose to, to open up God's word for after he's had the funeral for his wife. He opens up to Psalm 119, verse 68, which reads, You are good and do good. God, you are good and do good. You know what Mueller, through tears, said to the congregation after he buried his wife? He had three points to his sermon. The first point was this, the Lord was good and did good in giving my wife to me. The second point to his sermon was, the Lord was good and did good in long leaving her with me. 
I could have had 38 years with her, but I had 39. I could have had three years with her, but I had 39. I could have had 10 years with her, but I had 39. I could have had 15 years, but I had 39. The Lord's goodness was upon me for every day Mueller said that God gave me the beautiful relationship with my wife. The third point that he said was that the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. What Mueller was saying and what he was basking in was the truth of God's sovereignty that that even when evil befalls, even when death strikes, that God is still good and he's still sovereign in this. He he talked about a prayer that he prayed and he's holding his wife's hand as she's vacillating between life and death. And he prayed, yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in your hands. I hold her hands, but she is ultimately in your hands and you will do the very best thing for her and for me whether that's life or death. If it may be, raise her up yet again as my precious wife. You're able to do it, Mueller prayed, though she is so ill. But howsoever, he would pray, howsoever you deal with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with your holy will. This is what Mueller is saying. Whether you heal her here on earth or you heal her in eternity, allow me to be perfectly satisfied in your decision, in your sovereignty, in your goodness all the time, even when all the time means the very worst of times. There's some of you that have come to worship this morning and you know you know pain you know heartache you know diagnosis you know betrayal you know hurt you know uncertainty and it's in this moment if you were to be honest the very posture of your soul is a is a posture of question marks to a holy god if you were to be honest you're saying why me Or you're saying, have you forgotten me? Or you're saying, do you hear me? Or you're saying, do you notice me? Why? What I want you to hold on to is even in the midst of your question marks. Question marks that God is big enough for. Doubt that God enough is big for hurt and pain, that God is, is, is strong enough and good enough for you to come before him with all of your honesty, not your false piety, not figuring it out, not wrapping it up with a good theological bow, but in the moment of your anguish, in the moment of your rawness, coming before him and saying this truth, God, you are good all the time. All the time. God, you are good. Even when I can't perceive your goodness, even when I doubt your goodness, even when life isn't good. We might just need to say that out loud. God is good. All the time. God is good. And all the time. God is good all the time. 
Will you let that cover you? Just the canopy of his love and his tenderness and his grace to you. He is good all the time. Not only is God good all the time, but we see in Scripture that Jesus and his earthly ministry, he's good no matter the cost. It's the interesting aspect of who Jesus is, and he helps us see what goodness looks like on earth. I think we push away from goodness. You have these cliches, sort of a do-gooder. You have these cliches, a, a goody two-shoes. We want to we sort of push away from goodness because when we think of goodness, we, we think of a person who's sort of morally superior, self-righteous, going around saying, look at all the ways that they fall short, and look at, look at me. Clean, superior, righteous. And so there's a part of us, as Christians, we, we, we've seen goodness polluted even within a religious context. And so there's a part of us that's like, I, I don't know if I really want to be a good person. Not, not in that kind of way. And then Jesus comes along and he perfectly embodies goodness. And we think of goodness so often in, a, in what is, 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 is negative, like you need to be morally perfect. Well, none of us are. You have to be wholly righteous. Well, none of us are, but what we discover in Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of goodness, he is perfect in every way without sin, but he also shows us, shows us the positive demonstration of goodness in his strength and in his character. A, a good person understands that goodness is costly. Luke records Peter talking to Cornelius and his family, and he has this interesting way of talking about Jesus' earthly ministry. And we find it in Acts 10, verse 38. He, he being Jesus, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, it's an interesting little aside here. It, it talks about the goodness of Jesus in the fact that he, he heals the, the lame, he heals the leper, he heals the demon-possessed. He, he, he is a good uh, son in the sense that he is, is the perfect embodiment of grace and truth and love and tenderness. The disciples shoo away the children, and Jesus says what? He says, let them come unto me. The kingdom of God is, is, is theirs. You must become like a child. But there is a sense in which Jesus consistently embodies that, that goodness costs. That goodness requires a, a sacrifice. I mean, just think about the, the opening challenge between Satan and Jesus in that temptation scene. Jesus, led by the Spirit after his baptism, into the wilderness. And Jesus comes, uh, Jesus stands before Satan, and Satan comes before him with three unique temptations. One is, hey, the path to you being the Messiah, it can go through popularity. Just turn these stones into bread, and you can draw a crowd. Or climb up on top of the temple, highest place, jump off, call the angels to swoop down. You could draw a crowd. You could do that. Hey, Jesus, look at all of the kingdom, all this earthly realm. I will give it to you. What is Satan doing? He is saying to Jesus, choose the easier way. Here's a shortcut. You can, you can have it all and not have to go through the way of the cross. What does Jesus do? He resists Satan. What does Jesus do? He chooses the good way. 
which is the courageous, sacrificial way. Peter, later on in the gospel account, he hears Jesus talking about the way of the cross, and he says, hey, you're the Messiah. You can't talk like that. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus goes through this, this trumped-up trial. He could call down a whole legion of angels to, to stop it in the midst, but what does he do? He chooses the way of the cross. He's there at the Garden of Gethsemane. The very anguish of the, of the weight, uh, not only the physical weight, not only the emotional weight, but the spiritual weight of what he is going to bear on the cross for the redemption of all who trust in him. All of our sins are going to be laid upon him. He begins in this moment to, to wonder, is there another way? But he says what? Not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus chooses the harder road. He chooses the path less traveled by. He chooses, he chooses the way of sacrifice. He chooses perfect obedience to the Father's will. Now we're on to something. Now we're able to see that, that goodness has a strength to it. A good person is a courageous person. A good person is an obedient person. A good person says, I will follow the way of the Father even when it costs. Even when it costs my convenience. Even when it cost understanding of those who watch me and say, why are you doing that? Why are you traveling that way? And you know in that moment there, there is no other way to travel because it is the way of Jesus. It is the way and the will of God the Father. A good person chooses hard things to do. Jesus did and so will you. You will be called to take up your cross, to die to self, and to follow him daily. And just think about this for a second. Think about followers of Jesus who have made an indelible imprint upon your life. I want you to see those people. I want you to see a brother or a sister. I want you to see a, a son or a daughter or a father or a mother. I want you to see a Sunday school teacher. I want you to see a missionary. I want you to see a co-worker who you know love Jesus and love them deeply. They might be in heaven or they might still be here on earth. And, and so often when you describe that person who has made this imprint on your life, you know what comes to mind? They are a good person. They are good people. You might say it this way. She is a good person. He is a good person. And one way that you know their goodness has shined forth is because you've seen them in difficult times. You've seen them when they were backed into a corner. You've seen them up close when they've had to make difficult decisions and you've learned from them the strength of character. You've learned from them that goodness costs, that you've seen the sacrificial aspect of goodness in their life and you've wanted to be a better person because you've been in their presence. What is that? It is the contagious, contagious indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what it is. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you see someone that is obedient to the Father, you see someone who would take steps forward even when it costs them, you're inspired by that because why? It's the right way, even when it's the hard way, even when it's the uncertain way. So Jesus models for us what goodness actually looks like. Uh, we're reminded that God the Father is good all the time. And now, here's the kicker. As we leave here this morning, you and I, we are called as followers of Jesus to show the goodness of God through your good deeds, your good works, our life. This is plan A. That we are called, we are called to point people to our good God through 
our good deeds. Jesus is so clear about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he pauses to talk about your responsibility and my responsibility as salt and light. And notice what he says. In Matthew chapter 5, we read this very truth here in Scripture. And that truth is, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, And when it's on that stand, it gives light to all in the house in the same way. In the same way, you and me, we, we let our light shine before others so that they may applaud us. No, so that they may see our good works and say, what's different about that person? And give glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is a a powerful testimony of your light shining and the purpose of your light. Uh, The purpose of your light and the purpose of my light, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and the goodness of God flowing through us to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to our family, to those people that we rub up against. We rub up against those people, the people that get to know us the best and get to see us at our worst. And over time, imperfectly, yes, all of us are going to be imperfect in this way, but the goodness of God grows in us as we depend upon him more and more daily. And it it makes a difference. I I love the way Eugene Peterson, he has the, the message paraphrase. But he, he paraphrases Matthew chapter 5, and it reads this way. Just listen to the insight that he gives us in this paraphrase. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. Love that phrase. God's not a secret to be kept. We're not incognito Christians. We're not anonymous Christians. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill, if I make you light bearers. You don't think that I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Be opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. God has situated you in your workplace God has providentially placed you in your neighborhoods. God has, has, has sovereignly appointed you in your families to shine for him, to be a bright light of the difference that Jesus makes in your words and in your actions. This is plan A. Now, a lot of things get in the way of plan A. Sin does. We, we can cover up our light with with sin, right? We can cover up our light with impurity. We can cover up our light by choosing not the way of the cross, not the way of Jesus, but our way. We can be conformed into this world through our decisions and not transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why we need to daily be reminded that God has placed us where we are to shine brightly for him. We'll always be flickering lights, We're never going to perfectly shine this side of heaven. At times, our light will be dim. At times, our light will be covered up. But your light is intended to shine brightly for him. You remember that old song? I I think it's probably as popular of any song that that we continue to sing. It's so popular that it's sort of like this nursery rhyme that we sing to our kids. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And when you, in your workplace, when you live a life of integrity, when you're dependable, 
when you're not always swept up in, in the latest frustration, in the latest gossip of the workplace, when you, when you live for him, your light is shining. When you choose the way of purity, instead of, instead of consistently giving in to the way of impurity, you know what you're doing? You're letting your light shine. When you not only cherish and treasure your children, but you train them in godliness, you point them to the sufficiency of our Savior and the way of godliness, you know what you're doing? You're letting your light shine. When you care for your neighbor, you know them, you pray for them, you interact with them, you know what you're doing? You're letting your light shine. Now, all of us in this room, we, we at times, we, we dim our lights. We at times don't, don't soak in the radiance of the Son of God and let our light shine so brightly. I, I, I just kind of sort of imagine this principal that goes off this summer to an annual teachers and, and, and principal and administrators conference. Let's just imagine this is a big convention center in Las Vegas. It's got a five-year-old back at home. Well, you know what that five-year-old wants? He wants daddy to bring him back something from this conference, right? Calls his wife on the last day. She reminds him, hey, don't, don't come back home empty-handed. Pick something up. You've been to these exhibit halls, all these different vendors. I mean, you know, a five-year-old doesn't want a bunch of company pins. You know, a, a five-year-old doesn't want a, a teacher's consultant T-shirt. You know, so you're just going through these vendors wondering, what in the world am I going to get from my five-year-old? And finally, you go to this one vendor, and they've got a, kind of a unique thing there. They've got a solar-paneled flashlight. And you're like, oh, perfect got it. Put it in your uh, backpack. Off you go. You get on the plane. You head back to home. You drive into the driveway. Five-year-old comes rushing out, not to say, Daddy, 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 I'm so glad you're home, but to say what a five-year-old would say is, Daddy, what did you bring me? You're like, I'm so glad you asked. I got you a flashlight, and this flashlight doesn't need batteries. This flashlight is powered by the sun. Now, your five-year-old is kind of interested in this. Grabs a flashlight, runs into his room, cuts off all the lights, shuts the blinds, and then turns on that flashlight and screams out, Daddy, it doesn't even work. Daddy, the light, it, it's so dim. It doesn't even work. And so you go back into his room, you flip off the, the flashlight that is so dimly shining and you turn over and there's an inscription on the solar-powered flashlight that simply reads, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. And the power of this flashlight is connected to how much it is exposed to the sunlight that will feed it and power it to shine. We as Christians, if we're going to shine in the darkness of the night, we must stay in the light of the Son of God. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. So we must be men and women of prayer. We must be men and women of the Word of God. We must be men and women who bask in the radiance of His rays as they feed us and flow through us. If we're going to shine in the darkness of the night, we must stay in the light, the light of the world that never dims, that never flickers, that never goes out, a light that points us back to a God who is good all the time 
and all the time, he is good. A light that points us back to a Savior who chooses the hard way, the good way, the way of the cross for your salvation and my salvation. What a joy we have to be ambassadors of his light to a dark world. This little light of mine, we, we will let it shine. Let us pray.